Good day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History at the University of Exeter. He is the author of well over 100 books and is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And today we will be speaking about slavery, a historical interpretation. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Uh, Professor Black, what do historians, both of uh, ancient and modern history, mean by the term slavery? Well, you put your finger on it because there is no consistent definition of slavery. And you can see this even more if you look across time and if you look um, cross-culturally. Um, for example, there are differences of opinion as to whether debt bondage, forced work, forced prostitution, forced marriage should be within the scope of slavery. And attempts that have been made to determine an international uh, agreement, uh, we can now see that there was a lot of horse trading. So, for example, in 1926, uh, the members of the League of Nations, the equivalent of the United Nations, ratified uh, an international convention which was called with the object of securing the abolition of slavery in the slave trade. And it provided a clear definition of slavery as, quote, the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attaching to the right or own, rights of ownership are exercised. But far from that being readily agreed, we now know that there was a process of political bargaining that led, for example, to the exclusion of forced labor or the exclusion of sort of arranged marriage concubinage. Um, and, you know, the International Association Against Slavery in its definition in 2000 uh, included both of those. So I think it's fair to say that there is no clear agreement. And as another example of varied definitions, there's a contrast between slavery as the condition of a uh, distinct hereditary caste and enslavement as an individual fate or punishment. What, as far as we are aware of, uh, are the origins of slavery in human society? Well, as far as we're aware of, it seems to go all the way back. Um, that uh, people were um, presumably as a result of conflict between tribes or conflict within tribes, people were kept in a position of servitude. Um, the uh, legal basis of that uh, probably rested on force. Uh, but as far as we can see, slavery was an inherent condition of human society um, and I think it's fair to say that if you want to broaden the term slavery, as I've tried to do in my books, uh, you know, I've written a book on slavery and new global history um, and another one on the slave trade. I think if you want to broaden it to, in to discuss it in terms of coercive labor systems and slavery, however defined, is an example of coercive labor systems. So including, for example, convict labor, including serfdom. Um, including large-scale labor of people held in prison camps, um, then I think it's fair to say that such coercive labor was not a pathology, but, and this is an undesirable aspect of human history, something to be proud about as a species, but as, you know, uh, probably the basic nature of um, socioeconomic relations for much of human history. And indeed, 
in many societies it remains very important today. Would you agree with uh, historians like Barry Cunliffe who argue that slavery is a part and parcel of uh, early urbanization and in fact it's one of the, um, I suppose he would characterize it as uh, crimes of uh, early civilization? No, I don't see it as specifically to do with urbanization, uh, although clearly there were significant uh, slave labor forces in uh, large urban centers, such as ancient Rome, because from what I can see, it was also the case in rural society. I mean, it was a nature of, uh, of enforced labor, particularly um, where, and indeed you might argue, turn, Barry's, uh, turn Barry on his head and say, you know, in an urban area, there is more possibilities of using uh, money to set up a cost uh, economy in which you buy people's labor. Whereas um, for much of the, you know, the pre-modern world, there was a shortage of labor. And therefore, um, you used um, enslavement in order to secure your labor supply in rural areas. For example, you know, I mean, people have famously talked about the new world. Um, you could see this as an example of European settlement in the new world, but also you can see it as an example of, of African history, sub-Saharan African history, areas that were relatively short of people, however you wish to define short, and that had a requirement for labor, were more likely to resort to slavery than areas that have a plentiful labor supply and where you can use the cost context. So you might argue that the greatest antithesis to slavery in world history has been capitalism. Now, there's a controversial approach. Mm. Yes, indeed. Uh, do we have any idea as to what was the slave population in, say, ancient Rome? Uh, not precisely, but we do know that some of the very big sites of slavery, so, for example, the silver mines in in Attica, we do know we're talking about thousands of people on individual sites. I mean, you must remember that one of the complexities of slavery, and you see this very much in, let us say, the Ottoman Empire, is, you know, people often see um, owners as opposed to slaves. Uh, it's much less, much more complicated than that. Slaves can have their own slaves. Um, and obviously, very much the case in the Ottoman Empire, where the Grand Vizier can be a slave and have thousands of slaves of his own. Uh, but that was also a case in ancient Rome. I think what I would fairly say, and, and of course, the, the other complexity in many societies, including uh, Rome, is you get manumission. So you get uh, people being freed so that at one stage you might be a uh, you might be a free person, then you might acquire a debt and be enslaved as a result of that. Then you might be freed when your owner, when you either discharge the debt or your owner frees you on his or her deathbed. So I think we've got to move away from this idea that there is a fixed status of slave of slavehood, slavery, and linked to that, and there's a broader conceptual point, we've tended to read our account of slavery from what most attracts Western um, attention and to a degree uh, contrition, and that's the Atlantic slave trade and uh, slavery um, in the New World. Uh, but we shouldn't necessarily regard that as the definition of slavery or slave circumstances. And we have to be much more cautious in allowing for 
a multifaceted phenomenon, rather like war. Um, you know, you might think to yourself, you know, slavery when you see it, you know, war when you sleep, when you see it. Actually, as we know, uh, in talking about modern notions of warfare, hybrid warfare, etc., we know that war can be a very complex phenomenon, and the same is true of slavery. How would you compare then slavery in what we in the West call the ancient world, meaning Rome, uh, Greece, uh, and the Hellenic uh, Near East, with say slavery in the similar time period in India, China, or Japan? Well, there's been a lot of debate, as you know, in particular about the nature of slavery in China. And I think it's fair to say I'm not a specialist there, and I'd rather not make a comment on that particular one. As far as India is concerned, I think slavery in India, I mean, there was slavery in India in that period. Slavery becomes much easier to observe after you get to the Islamic world. Uh, becoming uh, prominent in, um, in northern India in particular. So you get societies, states like the Ghaznavids, for example, from southern Afghanistan, raiding down and having large-scale slave raiding into India. Now, clearly, there was already slavery in India prior to that, but you can see the slave trade more prominently once you have these large-scale raids, many of which are designed in order to um, to realize a sort of slave gains. Because, of course, in a relatively, um, well, unmetallic is the wrong word, but re a relatively, uh, a society is lacking liquidity, let's put it like that. Um, slavery becomes, slaves become a, a key sense uh, of wealth. I mean, it's usually argued that in Han China, about 5% uh, of the population was enslaved. Um, I, uh, you know, that's obviously a lower percentage than in Greece of that period and Rome of, Rome of that period. But that doesn't mean that if those who aren't formerly slaves are necessarily living in a benign situation, if you see what I mean. Do we have any idea in terms of the uh, ancient world uh, to what degree was the slave population um, demographically reproduced, meaning born into slavery, coming from slave families? And what um, percentage, well, roughly speaking, of course, everything in the ancient world we're talking about, roughly speaking, in, in absolute numbers, uh, what percentage was, uh, in, in essence, imported, meaning uh, enslaved on the various frontiers, or as you, as you said before, enslaved due to um, issues with the uh, debt? Well, as far as Rome is concerned, it appears to be that the importance of slave trade from outside the empire declined with time because the slave population was increasingly maintained by reproduction uh, among the slaves. Um, I think one has to be, I'd, I'd like to be very wary here because one has to build into the equation issues such as epidemic disease, which can affect uh, one's capacity to reproduce within a state, but also the extent to which after the wars of uh, Trajan and Hadrian, the Roman Empire is not expanding and therefore it doesn't have the capacity to acquire slaves so readily by conquest, though it can still buy them. What I would say is that in the case of Rome, which we appear to know the most more about than we know in the case of, say, China, in the case of Rome, 
you do have a situation in which either as a result of developing skill set or social environments, um, you end up with a greater capacity of the slave population to reproduce itself, which, of course, is the circumstance which occurred also in the uh, in the United States in the 19th century. Yes, that is that is, in fact, the case. Uh, you mentioned slavery previously in the Muslim world. And I wanted to inquire, what was your response or view of the um, thesis of an American academic at Georgetown University, uh, Professor Jonathan A.C. Brown, who argues that slavery in the Muslim world was considerably more benign and less violent and coercive in nature than, say, equivalent uh, slavery in the Western and Christian uh, world? I honestly don't think we have the kind of evidence that can either support or refute that. Um, and there's all sorts of issues to address. For example, there was a much higher frequency, insofar as we can tell, of castration um, as part of uh, household slavery um, in the Islamic world. Uh, it doesn't appear to have been anywhere near as common in the Christian world. Well, I don't know whether we would regard that as benign or not. Um, you know, the um, certainly accounts of Islamic slaving raids are, are not particularly benign. And you can see those going right up into the late 19th century in terms of, say, the Sokoto Caliphate of um, northern uh, Nigeria. Uh, it's slave raiding southwards, and you could arguably say that if you're looking at modern states like Mauritania or the conduct of Sudan towards the Christians and animists in the south uh, over the last 30 years, you, you know, you could argue that those are patterns of Islamic slaving, and I don't think anybody would describe those as benign, so I, I'm afraid to say I, I don't agree with, it, with, with the gentleman. You know, sticking to the Muslim world, I believe you've written that... Um one of the specialities, if you like, of, of uh, slavery in the Muslim world was, um, in, in essence, uh, sex slavery, meaning that uh, there was a um, trade which involved uh, slaving um, women from uh, frontier areas for purposes of uh, uh, being sex slaves, for lack of a better, or household slaves who would fulfill that function, among other things. Well, yes. I mean, I, let, let's be clear. Sexual abuse of women, and indeed of, of, of men, boys as, you know, in particular, um, is part of slavery. Um, it seems to have been uh, a particular feature in, in some slave trades. Um, and you can classically see it when the price of female slaves is higher than the price of male slaves. But household purposes, which can include sex or can be pre predominantly sex, but it doesn't necessarily have to be sex. Um, you can see when the price of women is higher, that tends to be the emphasis, whereas when the price of, of men is higher, which it generally was if you're looking at slavery into the new world, the prime requirement was labor. Now, we can discuss how far you got a different set of values in polygamous societies. We can discuss 
the um, relationship, as a fourth factor I've already mentioned, of castration of male slaves in Islamic societies, not all male slaves, of course. Um, so there are a whole host of factors. I, I'm just very wary of this idea, which you seem to see as a discussion, or at least in some of the modern politicization of slavery, that in somehow Islamic society was more benign. I, I think there is no evidence that I can see that supports that interpretation, though obviously it suits a number of politicized agendas today. Uh, how important uh, was Christianity to the decline of slavery in Western Europe in the um, high Middle Ages? Well, that is a very interesting uh, question. As you know, there is a latent anti-slavery in Christ's message. Um, and yet the early church, understandably, I suppose, in adapting to um, the social structures um, in the first millennium, found itself um, part and parcel of societies where there was slavery. And yet then further, going further, uh, the, slave, the slavery was very much rejected by Christian preachers, um, St. Wolfston, the Bishop of Worcester in the uh, late 11th century, for example, made a major effort in preaching visits to Bristol to persuade the populace there to end the slave trade. That's slaving essentially from Ireland. And I think if one wants to locate it more particularly, you could say that it's part of the Gregorian reform movement of the 11th century. When, as you will know, there was a whole host of attempts to increase the observance of Christian precepts, both within the church, so moves against uh, clerical sort of concubinage, and also more generally in society. Um, and, you know, church reformers challenged traditional patterns of male violence that had found honor in terms of slave raiding and in particular in the brutal sexual exploitation of enslaved women. And to loop back to this point about Islam, I'm not aware that at the same rate, the same thing happened in the Islamic world. So, you know, I think this is an important point. And again, as we, as you know, the modern church is quite rightly very, very critical of slavery in the modern world. And again, you know, you're looking at the societies where it's most present at the present moment, places like, um, you know, Mauritania or Sudan, I don't see the, the, you know, Islam making the same efforts to decry it. Do we have anything by way of numbers in approximate, obviously, uh, numbers of uh, those involved in the slave trade in the eastern and western Mediterranean in, in say, the 500 years prior to 1815? Um, not that I would regard as particularly uh, precise. There are a lot of numbers banded around, for example, as to how many people respectively were seized from North Africa by Christian raiders and conversely from Southern Christian Southern Europe by uh, Islamic raiders. I think these are very, very, very approximate. And I would take it a stage further. This is a pre-census age, so I'm not really precisely certain where people are supposed to get these figures from. I mean, you often get accounts, for example, of Barbarossa, the name for 
uh, Hydridid, the leading um, Islamic corsair profiteer out of Algiers, and the number of people that were seized when he, you know, raided Gozo or Corsica or Minorca in the um, 16th century. Uh, and, you know, these numbers are quite large, I mean, but I'm not sure how precise or reliable they are, and I'm not sure how they could have been precise or reliable. So I think one should pass on this. I think what one could fairly say is that in the Mediterranean, prior to the development of the Atlantic slave trade, there was already an extensive, extended and, uh, extensive and multifaceted slave trade that key parts of it were within the region, but there were also flows of slaves from outside the region. So Italian merchants in particular, until the advance of the Ottoman Turks, bought um, slaves uh, in the Black Sea and transported them into the Mediterranean for sale to markets, both Christian and Islamic. Um, Islamic slave traders brought slaves across the Sahara and also up the Red Sea, primarily for slave markets in uh, North Africa, enormous slave markets in places like Cairo, but also in some cases to sell them north into Christian Europe. So, and you know, there were slaves in places like um, Sicily, in places like uh, Portugal. Um, and um, so I think you would say that there was a fairly extensive slave economy around the Mediterranean, stronger on the Islamic side, but nevertheless existing on parts, though not all parts of the Christian shores of the Mediterranean. This is disrupted very heavily by the advance of the Ottoman Turks, who of course famously capture Constantinople in 1453, who end the slave trade from the Black Sea. And in many respects, the development of the slave trade across the Atlantic is in part a reflection of the disruption of the Black Sea into the Mediterranean trade, uh, the availability of commercial organizations, commercial acumen, uh, financial sources uh, that uh, are interested in looking for new sources of slaves accordingly, and the spreading Portuguese trade down the west coast of Africa in the 15th century, Portuguese capture Ceuta in 1415, but then moved down to the sub-Saharan area from the 1440s, and they're interested in trying to acquire slaves. Now, they try start off by trying to seize them, and not surprisingly, they have no real success. I mean, you know, the native uh, peoples are quite strong enough to uh, beat off Portuguese attack, so the Portuguese move instead into buying them. And again, this shouldn't surprise us, purchase is the principal means by which slaves are acquired. And from that point of view, African strength is a crucial aspect of the Atlantic slave trade uh, because it's African power politics and economics that helps to enable uh, the sale of slaves um, and makes that sale convenient. But the Portuguese, they lack the uh, inshore vessels to fight it out with African coastal vessels. And um, so you get this sort of uh, situation developing and um, the Portuguese put money into it. Uh, El Mina, uh, St. George de Mina, uh, is founded on the Gold Coast in uh, 1482. Um, and uh, initially, I mean, this is obviously as before Columbus sails the you know, the ocean blue, as you will realize. So initially, slaves are 
being used for developing a um, a kind of enslaved sugar producing society on offshore islands off the African coast. That, I think it's fair to say, is the most important early use of slaves. And that model is then rolled out um, westwards when they get the opportunity in the new world. Although in the new world, the context is different because whereas in Africa you can buy slaves readily, um, and there are slaves readily to be bought. Um, the situation is very different in the new world because um, there is a shortage of, uh, of people to purchase. And that helps to mean that are, although they initially um, do enslave the locals, the Arawaks, for example, in the West Indies, many of these people die off uh, from disease uh, on the mainland, uh, many of them fight back, and it, the cost economics becomes one in which it is less expensive, though this takes a while, it is less expensive to purchase Africans and to transport them across um, the Atlantic than it is to try and receive or supply yourself with slaves in the New World. Although slave raiding in the New World, slave purchase in the New World, remains a you know a factor but you see by the 1840s hispaniola the uh, island which we now divide between haiti and and dominican republic uh, by the eight, sorry by the 1540s uh, it has about 15000 african slaves and by the 1550s about 25000 um again all these numbers are approximate so let let me make that very very clear um and um so you've got a new political economy which in many senses is driven by the separate availability of supply. And the Europeans on the whole cannot control the supply. They can try and profit from it using either money um, or uh, goods that they sell, um, but they cannot determine it. So I, I believe that you would state that uh, it was not the case that Portuguese in particular beginning in the 15th, early 15th century uh, and thereafter, uh, Portuguese demand for slaves did not per se create a, um, a market for slaves in African societies, that such a market already existed. Yes, I mean, such a market already existed. And um, insofar as there were external flows, the prime external flows were obviously northwards across the Sahara, northwards up the Red Sea and across the Red Sea into the Arabian Peninsula. And there were already, of course, slave flows from the East African coast uh, to places such as the both Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, um, and in fact, the west coast of, uh, of India. So no, I would not argue that the Portuguese created the slave trade. I think, again, that sort of suits modern agendas more than reflecting a situation of accuracy. How much agency would you give uh, Africans at that time as per their involvement in the slave trade? Well, Africa, like Europe, had powerful polities as well as states, if you want to use that term, as well as those that weren't powerful. And those states that were powerful were quite able to um, uh, defeat rivals, to seize people, and then to determine what to do with them. So that, if you want to use that term as agency, I would use agency to describe that. I think that would be a, um, a very, very suitable one. And uh, I mean, if you're looking for the most dramatic military intervention in um, 
sub-Saharan Africa in the 16th century. It's not by the Europeans. It's, of course, the Moroccan army that crosses the Sahara, 1590, 1591, and advances to the river Niger and brings down the Songhai um, uh, Emirate or whatever it's called. Um, yes, Emirate, uh, the, the Songhai one um, in the mid Niger. So I'm not sure that I would necessarily be putting the uh, the Europeans foremost and European control over any appreciable amount of Africa territorial control is relatively limited prior to the 19th century. And, um, you know, one, I think one has to be very wary of assuming that in some way um, Africans are vulnerable. They're, they're not vulnerable. These are powerful and potent societies, societies like the Asante or Dahomey, um, are very strong indeed. And um, I think one could take that further. I mean, you know, there's been some rather good work on the way in which uh, the Portuguese were stopped uh, in Congo uh, uh, and Angola in the 16th century. John Thornton has written, I think, a rather excellent book on Africa and the Africans and the making of the Atlantic world. And his is very much a history of of, um, African agency and not of the Africans as sort of vulnerable victims of of, of the Europeans. And, uh, you know, I think that that makes a lot of sense, uh, just as it makes a lot of sense that um, alongside conflicts between Europeans, so-called wars of religion, 30 years war, etc., conflicts which cause many casualties within Europe, you say you get conflicts in Africa, and part of the casualty is that you, as it were, create um, prisoners who you can then determine what to do with. Now, as you know, there have been all sorts of discussions about the nature of agriculture there, the nature of soil breaking with what the tools used, whether there were, um, how far there was a shortage of labor, what the importance of debt bondage was. All of these are elements that have to be factored into the situation. And we would need, as you would know, a very lengthy conversation to um, to discuss all of these. But what I, I'm, I'm wary of um, is, uh, is the argument that uh, you can provide a single interpretation, and that single interpretation is in terms of the ills of um, Western capitalism. Uh, harping on that point, would you sur- uh, provide a surmise as to why uh, it is the case that historians are much less interested as a topic for scholarly exploration and research, slavery in uh, the Muslim world as opposed to, say, slavery in the New World after the uh, 16th century. Well, I imagine it's got something to do with the difficulty of the subject of working on slavery within the Islamic world. You would need to, uh, you know, there are harder problems to do with archival availability and access. But obviously, there are issues, um, you, you know, you're talking about in part the United States, and there's issues towards um, the understanding of how America became the demographic uh, situation, which it is at the present moment. And as you will know, the historical world is not free from, in fact, it's often zealously acting in uh, culture wars. And these issues can be very much part of culture wars. I was at a um, a uh, 
seminar, you know, in the British Library, they had an exhibition, I think it was the year before last, on the Anglo-Saxons. They asked me to speak on 18th century Anglo-Saxonism, which I did. And there were four of us there, and one of the other people, you know, talking about the Anglo-Saxons, American, in fact, and announced that the, um, you know, the British had invented the slave trade, etc., 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 and I just thought this was amazing, but of course, you know, it was obviously wrong, uh, but it reflected um, the kind of political agenda that they were, academic political agenda, shall we say, that they were offering. Now, it's the fact that it is erroneous um, is neither here nor there. I mean, uh, some years ago, I spoke at a, um, uh, a African Studies Department in uh, um, uh, Penn State, and, you know, it went well. There was an interesting discussion about slavery and, you know, it was handled very well. Um, but somebody did get very worked up um, uh, who was from Ethiopia about um, the Europeans. And, and, you know, I said to him, well, yes, Europe, uh, Europeans uh, acted very poorly towards Ethiopia. But uh, I said, insofar as slavery is concerned, it is obviously the case that there was much pre-European slaving across the Red Sea, particularly the Sultanate of Adal in the 16th century. And of course, the Ethiopians themselves enslaved um, um, people to the south, like the Oromo. Um, and of course, he just didn't want to hear that. This was just totally unacceptable to him. The only the only enslavers were Europeans. I just gave up. I mean, you know, you're not really engaging in uh, matured conversation when uh, this sort of thing happens. And, you know, you're not going to persuade people, uh, which is very sad. I mean, I, you know, I started my career believing that one could use reason to persuade people. And certainly in the, you know, in the melange of views out there at the present moment, reason seems to plead the least of the, uh, of the factors at play. Do you agree with the thesis of uh, David B. Davis that uh, the rise of abolitionism in the Western world, or specifically uh, North America and Western Europe, um, was due to the decline in the profitability of slavery in the beginning in the late 18th century? Well, he didn't originate that idea. Of course, the idea is a, a much older one. No, I don't, actually. I, I've met him. I think he's very good, very nice man, I ought to add. No, I don't agree with that view. I think uh, um, uh, Christian evangelicalism is extremely important, and I think it plays a very major role, certainly in Britain it does. Um, and I think that um, slavery was still... Uh, profitable in the early 19th century, which is why you get people trying to go on um, uh, you know, importing slaves uh, illegally from Africa, which of course remains uh, quite significant. If slavery had been so uneconomic, people wouldn't have done that. And of course, um, another aspect of the continued profitability of slave economies is the extent in which once slavery is abolished um, in the British world, you get some British financiers investing in aspects, for example, of the economy of Cuba, where slavery continues. Now, they would hardly have done that if this was regarded as a um, redundant um, labor force. I think the Davis model is possibly more appropriate for Brazil in the late 19th century. In, by the late 19th century in Brazil, you're getting a, 
an attitude in which um, uh, the uh, the uh, the dynamic area expansion of the economy is very much linked to free labor flows, particularly from Europe and the older uh, provinces on the north coast, places like like Recife, um, are there actually becoming economically a bit redundant. So I think that you could fairly say that in Brazil, but I'm not sure I would say that more generally, nor am I sure I would necessarily bring it earlier in a period to a period when labor is of still of some considerable value. And uh, I mean, in the case of Brazil, um, you know, the slave economy of the Northeast um, was hit as part of a more general agrarian depression and as part of a, a change politically. So Brazil becomes a republic in 1889, I think it is. Um, and you know, given that that's the case, you're talking about a very different time span to what David Davis is talking about. Would it be correct to say that the end of slavery in the 19th century um, was predominantly a Western white Christian endeavor in which the slaves themselves were for the most part, other than a few um, minor incidents, uh, objects rather than subjects, acted upon rather than acting? Well, as you know, that's highly controversial, uh, Charles. I mean, I certainly think in Haiti, I think one, one would probably say no. Um, but I certainly think that if you're looking at um, the British world or you're looking at um, the American world, yes, I would agree with you. Clearly, there are... Um, slave risings, these attract attention, clearly there are concerns linked to those, but on the whole it's metropolitan decisions reflecting changes in culture in the metropolitan, in other words places like London, that are crucial and I would say yes I'd agree with you, I think um, religion is an enormously significant role um, in a shift in Western culture and it's no accident that um, you don't get that shift occurring to the same extent in other slave societies. So I, th I think, yes, you've got to look for a cultural variable. You say that um, some, in your book on slavery, that the story of slavery in the 20th century is different than the story of slavery in the 19th century. Why so? Well, um, as you may know, I mean, you've read the book, uh, Slavery, and there's another one, uh, The Atlantic Slave Trade in World History. So they're designed to complement each other. I mean, what I argue essentially is that most of our focus on slavery has been on what I call private slavery. In other words, slavery within a capitalist context or slavery within, in, in order to further uh, private um, you know, sort of landowners and so on. But I argue that there is also the need to continue, to continue and consider the strong strand of state slavery. And I take that from the ancient world, I take, you know, where there were state slaves as well as private slaves. So many of the uh, mineral deposits that were worked, for example, were both state slaves. Um, I look very much at the um, Islamic societies like Morocco, Iran, uh, the Ottoman Empire, in which you have powerful uh, state slave forces, particularly military forces. And I then argue also, if you look forward to the 20th century, you can see slavery very much the case. Uh, both in terms of the treatment of whole uh, 
um, social or ethnic groups judged criminal or un unwelcome or intended for genocidal treatment. And you see that in Nazi Germany, you see that in the Soviet Union, um, uh, you see that in some of the other totalitarian regimes. And I would also argue, and you know, in the case of North Korea today, it is the logic of an entire totalitarianism as well, that the entire society are slaves of, of a system. So I, and I, what I suggest is precisely because there is a, um, uh, a politicization of this issue in the West, people are not, um, commentators are not really happy with that interpretation. They're much happier talking about slavery um, in a capitalist context in the Atlantic world. And they're much less happy to consider slavery like, for example, you know, the very large number in the 1950s and 60s of in Romania, the large numbers of people sort of forced to work on the on the Danube Canal, many of them dying, incidentally. Uh, most of these middle class people who had been uh, seized by the new communist regime. Um, and, you know, to my mind, that's slavery. Um, and I'm not really comfortable with the argument that slavery is primarily a capitalist concern. If it is control over people and enforced labor, then it is as much a matter of totalitarian regimes that do this as it is um, a matter of um, people being purchased in, or their labor gained in or controlled in other ways. So I would argue that slavery actually was very important in the 20th century. Uh, one has no way of knowing where the history of the world is going. And I certainly have no way of knowing where the history of the world is going. It may well be um, that um, state slavery of a form uh, becomes more prominent if totalitarian regimes are the norm in 100 years' time, 50 years' time. It may not be. I simply don't know. Um, but it is not helpful to, um, in our discussion of such regimes to treat slavery as something that is so different that the term cannot be applied. Going back a bit, actually your comments just provoked this in my mind, and uh, it's something that I've scratched my head over at various points uh, when I've approached this subject. It is uh, not unusual for uh, commentators, usually they're not specialists in the area, but they're discussing it, um, on the Janissary system in uh, the Ottoman Empire that they uh, contend that it was mostly a benign or somewhat benign system uh, for those who don't know, generous system in uh, the Ottoman Empire involved the enslavement of Christian children, predominantly in the Balkans, for service in the Ottoman Empire, predominantly military service, but also could be bureaucratic and other forms of service in the empire. And it, I even read arguments or statements akin to the fact oh, well, you know, the parents didn't really care that much. They thought actually that could be good for their children, so there was no great um, hardship involved. Would you, what is your take on that? Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting view of slavery, isn't it? And I mean, let me say, if, if you, Charles, as a New Yorker, were to go up to a group of um, you know, African-Americans at your, uh, your curbside and say to them, you know, wouldn't you have been better off um, as slaves uh, 150 years ago or you know, here, they would probably not be terribly sympathetic to that view. So let's start off. The, the, the young boys 
uh, were not taken on any consensual basis. They were it was a it was an extorted form of seizure of labour as opposed to just sending out a uh, you know slave raiders. Um, they were taken their initial stage as I was as I understand it is that they were assigned to farmers Turkish farmers in Anatolia in order to accustom them to hardship and physical labour and to teach them the basis of Islam and. Uh, more significantly Turkish. And that went on for about seven to eight years. So for seven to eight years, these young boys were away from their family, probably being beaten, uh, forced to do very arduous labor. Uh, you know, I mean, you might describe that as pleasant. I don't know. I'm not sure I would uh, describe it as pleasant. Obviously, they were circumcised as well to Islamize them. I don't know whether that would be pleasant for somebody in their teens. I have no idea, no anesthetic. But again, they were then, after the seven to eight years, and they never saw their family again, of course, they were based in the barracks of the novices near the imperial palace, used um, initially for manual things such as transporting firewood to the palace, uh, working as palace laundrymen, etc. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then, of course, when they were sent into battle, you're not exactly talking about people being very careful of their of their. Uh, of their uh, livelihood. I mean, you know, they were there, they literally were there to be uh, killed if necessary because, you know, there were plenty of them. So no, I mean, you know, I mean, there may well have been a worse life. And I suppose, you know, working in a mine down that period might well have been worse. And as you will know, Southern apologists in the 19th century and the 1830s, 1840s and 1850s argued that slavery was a best in the South for African-Americans uh, not that they ever wished to be exposed to the same thing themselves, but they argued that that was more benign than working in a Massachusetts mill town. Again, I'm not sure we would necessarily take that view today, but, you know, play with the idea if you want. What can one say about slavery in our contemporary world? Is it making a comeback? Well, slavery clearly exists. I mean, there are various UN uh, estimates, and they're talking about private slavery here. They completely won't touch the issue of uh, public slavery. And the estimates are usually 20 to 30 million, uh, most concentrated in the Sahel countries of, uh, of Africa, Mali, Niger, uh, Mauritania, Sudan where it's usually black slaves working for, seized by, and then working for um, um, sort of Arab um, owners. Um, there is also now obviously growing interest, concern, and police action against uh, trafficked labor in, in Western economies, and that appears to be um, you know, more developed than people used to be aware of. So probably estimates of slavery, private slavery, are underestimates. Um, and on top of that, I mean, if you want to think of, you know, countries like Mexico with criminal gangs running not just their own organizations, but extensive protection rackets. I mean, you could argue that people who are paying up in protection rackets are in effect um, slaves to an extent of the uh, of that system. So I think in the private sector, yes, it exists. And in the state set sector, it exists. I think, you know, in totalitarian states uh, where there is no opportunity to either leave that society, to vote the government out, 
um, you are often in a very difficult and dire position. And, uh, you know, I cite North Korea. It is only the most extreme example. I mean, you could argue that during, for example, the um, Pol Pot regime, the entire population of Cambodia were slaves. So, you know, these are issues that we can discuss. But I certainly don't think slavery is something that has uh, ceased to exist. And the more we are aware of the complexity of defining it, the more that some of those definitions may well be, in fact, are pertinent to the present moment. Why do so many in the United Kingdom and the United States see the need to apologize for slavery when it was the West which was the prime agent in the eradication of slavery insofar as that has occurred in the last 250 years? Well, um, I've written extensively about this issue of apology in a number of works. I don't think it's helpful. I think the idea of inherited guilt is a deeply um, trouble, troubling one. It's deeply, and it's often used to justify um, violence and ethnic terror. Uh, I think with the specific issue of slavery, I think you're right. I think that um, the um, Western societies played a major role in ending slavery, both within them and their worlds they controlled, and in the non-West in the 19th and early 20th century. And of course, the societies that were most reluctant to do so were societies like Saudi Arabia, which was non-Western. So I think what you're talking about is part of the very curious nature in which the past is deployed in politicized culture wars at the present moment. Often, I would say generally, others may not agree, but I would say generally in, term for, in sort of forwarding a left-wing agenda in which people are encouraged in Western societies to feel guilty about and embarrassed about being nationals of the countries that they are part of. In the case of the United Kingdom and the United States, both of which, of course, have done things that neither of us would find attractive, but both of which, on the, on the whole, in world history, particularly in the last 150 years, have taken a singularly benign role. I think it's deeply shocking that so many of their so-called intellectuals behave as people who hate their own country and seem to prefer the tyrannies of other countries. If you wanted people to take one thing away from our discussion, what would it be? That if you're looking at slavery, you've got to consider public slavery as well as private slavery. Public slavery exists to the present day and is an issue we need to think about when we are considering modern day politics. With that observation, which I agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.